Today's Bible reading is taken from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2 to 4 and John chapter 10 verse 11 to 21. We'll start from Habakkuk. The pronouncement of the prophet Habakkuk saw, How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen, or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppressions and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteousness, therefore justice comes out perverted. Move on to John chapter 10, verse 11 to 21. I am a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not a shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and run away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and satters them. This happens because he is hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have the other sheep that are not from this sheep's pen. I bring Sorry, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take up it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Again, the Jews were divided because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and he is crazy. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These aren't the words of someone who is demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? That's good. Some murmurings of goodness, maybe. Uh, as we wrestle with the topic of, is God good? That's uh, uh, Perhaps that's what you're murmuring about, because it's not, a, not necessarily an easy one this morning, but uh, an important one. Uh, let me open up uh, God's Word as we speak from it uh, today. John chapter 10. I encourage you to keep your Bible open. In fact, uh, as... Um, as we refer to uh, different passages of the Bible, and you might even have passages in mind for this topic, uh, there's an opportunity for you to use the QR code to put through uh, anonymous questions that Nat and I will actually answer together after this. Uh, this is a pretty big talk um, in terms of topic, uh, and we want to do it as well as we can, and no doubt there'll be flow-on conversation after this. Uh, last week, we looked at the question of, is God true? Uh, and we saw Thomas, uh, doubting Thomas, uh, that doubted the claim that his fellow disciples said, Jesus has risen. And it's a reasonable thing that we said uh, to doubt that claim because it's an extraordinary claim. But Jesus welcomed those doubts 
uh, and he invited Thomas to explore himself, and in so doing, Thomas encountered the risen Lord. Jesus came into history to reveal God and to allow us to explore, to consider with our head and our heart so that we might encounter Jesus and respond to Him. Uh, one of the things I said at the end of last week is as we, as we encourage uh, others to do so, uh, next steps for us could be meeting with others to open God's Word that we might explore Him together. Uh, and as Jared and Nat have already spoken to, this week uh, we're trying to give some space to help us be better equipped to do that uh, in the one-to-one Bible reading training. And I'm hoping that's really helpful. I've, one, of the, one of the best things about my job is actually sitting down with people to read God's Word uh, and I've read the God's Word with many people, both uh, searchers and, and doubters and believers, and I'm, I'd love you to attend to be equipped for that. Uh, the truth of God, of course, uh, puts a claim upon us. Uh, it's a claim that we are loved, more loved than we would ever realise, but also that we need saving. That's the recap from last week, and assume, assume you're with me to this point. I mean, I might have lost you already at week one, uh, but uh, assume you're with me, and, and let's say that God is true. That the question we come to today of, is God good, is an altogether kind of different kind of question. It's a heart question. For even if He is true, if He's not good, we're not interested. That's how the logic, the heart logic goes. Uh, But it's a funny question. Is God good? It's funny for two reasons. It's quite a bold thing to stand over God and judge Him as good or not, isn't it? Uh, But also, what is good? What are we meaning by, is God good? I had a good cup of coffee this morning, is that what I mean? Uh, or, or, I wish you a good morning this morning, is that what I mean? Or, uh, who should I pick on? Uh, Pete, he's a good guy, is that closer to what we mean? Or, or I'm hoping uh, that Raymond comes good on his promises. Uh, all these kinds of ways that we use good are kind of capturing a sense of upstanding character, uh, is able to bring good outcomes, loving that is, He acts towards my good and not bad, if I could just generalise a bucket there. And the last one is a pointy one, because in terms of public opinion, Christianity has moved from good, uh, a good for society, to, to neutral, let's just leave it alone, let it do its thing, to bad. That is, it is acting in a way that hurts society. Uh, you can read lots about that. Um, uh, there's actually a book written by Stephen McAlpine called Being the Bad Guys that actually articulates that journey, if you're not sure what I'm talking about. But it's considered bad mostly because Christianity holds to a way of life that cuts across our feelings of freedom and self-authentication, that someone would tell us how to live is altogether bad. But also, and something that has vexed humanity pretty much from the beginning is the existence of evil and suffering. Where is God's goodness in that? Now, for those in the room, some of you are wrestling with this right now. Uh, There are sufferings uh, and sadnesses that you are carrying that are causing you to question, where is God and is He good? Uh, My wife is sick today, uh, that, uh, you know, for all kinds of reasons, whether it's COVID or sickness, she hasn't got COVID, I don't think, but uh, there are all kinds of other heavy things that we carry that cause us to suffer, but also we, we watch suffering, we see it from a distance and we try and make sense of it for the 77 million suffering severe famine in South Sudan alone, 
or the continued conflict in Gaza and Ukraine, where is God? Is He good? How will we make sense of a good God through this? That's what we're wrestling with today in our Making Sense of God series, Uh, and no doubt you're looking forward to seeing me resolve that, a nice little bow for you. Let me just say at least that Jesus is the key to making sense of this, especially God's character. It's subtitled here, Making Sense of God's Character, because our assessment of His goodness uh, comes from an understanding of who God is, His very character. And we'll be able to answer some of the larger whys today, but we have to note that there are a whole bunch of whys that frustrate us, are mysterious to us, and we will not have fully resolved until we see Jesus face to face. This morning, being such a large topic, uh, I'm going to try and build a framework with Jesus at the center, a framework that at least allows us to ask some questions and seek some answers. I will not be able to answer uh, all the questions that even I raise uh, in the next 20 minutes, Uh, but as as I build a framework with the Scriptures in hand, uh, I'm hoping it's an opportunity for us, for you to be able to ask questions and for the answers to be able to sit in that framework and for conversations to continue. Uh, As I said, the QR code is going to be most helpful for putting through anonymous questions. We'll take some from the floor, perhaps, but most will come through the QR form, and there's already been a bunch already. Here's the framework for today. Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Let's start there from John 10. Uh, But it's not going to take us too long to get to kind of some of the deeper questions. That is, questioning the existence of suffering and the sovereignty of God. That's the second part we're going to look at. Thirdly, we're going to be questioning the goodness of God's commands and judgments, particularly as we look at some of the things in the Old Testament. And then we're going to return to Jesus' reference of Himself as the shepherd, the suffering shepherd, the one who lays down His life as God's ultimate response to evil and suffering. So let's begin. Jesus, the good shepherd. Uh, what makes a good shepherd? Uh, you guys would know, you're very familiar with shepherding, I presume. Uh, shepherding uh, involves looking after sheep, someone who protects and cares for sheep. Uh, We often think of, and I think I spoke of this uh, during the uh, Christmas series, uh, we often think of shepherds as kind of like, you know, really nice kind of people, uh, hanging out with a sheep, really beautiful, caring, loving people, but it was a job for nobodies, they weren't trusted by society, they were on the margins of society, and so it's kind of funny that Jesus chooses to align Himself with shepherds in a way of describing Himself. He's got His reasons, of course. But what makes a good shepherd? Someone who cares for the sheep. Unlike, for instance, as Jesus referenced the hired help uh, in verse 13. The hired help uh, come, uh, leave running when trouble happens because they just don't care enough about the sheep. They care about themselves more than the sheep. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, I, I dare say, without getting myself into too much trouble or controversy, that your life is worth more than a... Sh- oh, okay. uh, the point here is that Jesus is describing Himself as someone who doesn't go running as soon as trouble comes, but rather He cares for the sheep uh, and even to the point where, and this is extraordinary, right? He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. How much does Jesus care for the sheep? He lays down His life should a threat come, should thieves and robbers come, should a wolf come. He is prepared to lay down His life to protect the sheep. That's ridiculous, really? What is Jesus getting at here? He is emphasizing the character of the Good Shepherd, of Himself, as someone who cares for the sheep, and it, you know, He's not actually talking about sheep here, isn't it? It's an analogy. He's talking about you, people. He cares for those in His flock, people, enough to lay down His life for them. 
Now, this nobody servant role, caring for lowly sheep, is a picture of Jesus in all humility, serving us. And as he goes on about his authority to lay down his life for you, who he loves, it generates some controversy in the crowd. And so some people say, he has a demon and he's crazy, why do you listen to him? I mean, we're kind of down with the analogy of a good shepherd, that's nice, but as soon as you're talking about laying down your life uh, and having the authority to take it up again, that's crazy talk. Uh, He's surely got a demon. But then the crowd chime in, these aren't the words of someone who is demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so even in Jesus' story, analogy of himself, he knows that the crowd have already seen the good shepherd in action. The crowd have seen Jesus care for the poor, uh, heal the blind, uh, uh, cast demons out of people, teach with authority to the amazement of the crowds, to the point where the character of Jesus has been on display enough for people to say, he ain't got no demon, he's a good shepherd. Because Jesus has been revealing the heart of God, the character of God, in the way he relates to people, in the way he cares for people. Is Jesus good? Well, it seems like most of the crowd would say yes. Just like he allowed Thomas to explore his wounds in his side and in his hands and feet, his very walking of the earth has allowed us to consider his character, his actions and his words. Now, as we look at Jesus through the Gospels, which is a privilege to be able to do, when you say, what is God like? We don't say, we have a prophet who talks about what God's like. No, no, we've seen what God is like in the flesh. Jesus is revealed as the Good Shepherd, but a few things defy simple ideas of good. That is, He calls people to repentance. Is that good? That He would call you to to take up your cross, to die to your old self and to obey Him and live for Him, is that good? Uh, He talks about hell the most in the whole New Testament, is that good? And bad stuff happens. He hungers, he is disrespected, he is beaten and he is ultimately killed as a criminal. Was Jesus not good enough to overcome evil? Hmm. We long for evil to be overcome, do we not? Where is God in that? Where was God when Jesus was crucified? The Bible gives voice to our longing. In fact, a few hundred years before Jesus was a prophet named Habakkuk. As Jen read from our first reading, Habakkuk speaks with God, just before Israel is invaded by the superpower of the day, Babylon. So, two and a half thousand years later, today, we still resonate with the cry of Habakkuk, who says, how long, Lord, must I call for help? Have you cried out to God, saying, where are you? This stuff is happening right before my eyes, right before your eyes, are you asleep? Why do you not listen? Oh, Lord, how long must I call for help? or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges, and for the wicked uh, restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Could you imagine, not only are you crying out to God, where are you, which altogether sounds reasonable at times, but then start to lecture God on justice, that's tricky territory, but it comes from a place of hurt. We long for justice to be corrected, and when it's not, and when God seems to stand idle, 
That's a problem. So we see, so we feel, where is God's goodness? And so we ask the question of how do we make sense of the existence of suffering and the so-called sovereignty of God. Sovereignty uh, is a way of referring to, you know, when we refer to a sovereign power, we refer to someone who is in charge of all things or within a realm. Now, firstly, can I say something obvious, uh, although it might not be obvious, and it's quite significant. That is, the Scriptures do not hide from this reality. This is not a question in the sealed section of the Bible. Uh, This is not kind of something that has been removed because it's actually, it's an embarrassment to Christian faith. It is in the Bible, God has given us these words because the Bible is not all about soft lens, Jesus holding a lamb kind of thing. In fact, it's mostly not that at all. It's gritty, it's real, it provides a thick narrative of the ups and downs of life, all the complexities of life, because this is not an intellectual question as much as a real-life question. And secondly, the existence of evil and suffering without God might sound simpler, suffering just is, but it does not give real explanatory power for us to face it, for us to endure, for us to persevere. It even gives rise to ethics like it's just a dog-eat-dog world. But the issue for Christians, as we trust in God, is acutely put, where is God in all this? If He's all-loving and all-powerful, then what the heck? Let me build a bit of a framework here. Again, Q&A will continue to flesh out within the framework. It begins with the beginning. Uh, That sounds like a really beginning of a long sermon, but we'll get there. Uh, It begins in the beginning because, as we uh, uh, might know, the world is created entirely good. That is, as God steps back from His creation, He says, it is good. It is good. It's a description of God's good intent executed in a good creation uh, with God's, uh, the climax of creation being Adam and Eve to exercise responsibility and stewardship over God's good creation. God steps back from all of that with Adam and Eve before Him and says, it is good. It's good for all of, I don't know, two pages of the Bible. Uh, until God creates humanity, lets them loose to exercise that responsibility and freedom, and they give God the middle finger by doing what they wanted. And the result is, as God is disrespected, dishonoured, and has the relationship with, with you know, humanity and God broken, God stands over them and judges them. He hands them over to their own desires and banishes them from His presence because He is a holy God. And from that point on, there is pain, suffering, murder, and that's just the next two pages. In this sense, evil and suffering is an intrusion into God's good world. So, did God walk away from that point? Well, He certainly remains holy and righteous, and in that sense, there is a separation between God as holy and all that is unholy or unrighteous, that is not right, and yet He pursues His people in love, and the story of the Old Testament is one of God consistently calling His people back to Himself to honour Him as God and enjoy His blessings. doesn't sound like a hard thing to do, but the story of the Old Testament is also a story of the human condition and our inability to get ourselves together and to come back to God, a collective failure to come back to God, our Maker and Redeemer. And so, just even in that very brief outline, 
Let's ask a few basic questions. Why is there suffering and evil? Put simply, because we have rejected God, God has judged the world, and we're living out the consequences of that. The good, harmonious relationship we had in the garden in the beginning with God, with humanity, and with the world has been fractured in every dimension, and that bears out consequences in every way, every day. So let's ask another question then. So is bad stuff because I did bad things? Not that explicitly. Jesus helps us uh, see that. In fact, just the previous chapter in John chapter 9, uh, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a common idea, especially given the outline we've just, uh, just put forward, uh, that, that bad stuff must be a result of someone's sin. So they asked Jesus that explicitly, and Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's just not that explicit. The, con- the connections are not that explicit. Uh, we are agents and victims of sin. So that is, we participate in sin with Adam and Eve. We also like to live life our own way and dishonour God. Uh, but we're also caught up in a world that is broken and bearing out the consequences of God's judgment and sin. And so sometimes we suffer the consequences of sin as victims, not as perpetrators. And sometimes the the, the difference between these two things are totally blurred and, 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 and meshed. But I think these two categories are helpful for us to understand. It's not quite as simple as your suffering equals you've sinned. And so if we're caught up in all this and we're standing under God's judgment, is God absent? Has He just handed us over to our own desires and that everything's just bearing out its consequences? Habakkuk's question of why do you stand by while this happens is a real question. Is injustice unchecked? Is God absent? Well, as you read Habakkuk, God does not stay silent. He answers, I will raise up Babylon who will wage war against you as my judgment upon you. I've paraphrased the chapter there. That sounds terrible. But if there is a good there, it is that injustice pains God and He will not let it go unchecked. Which raises the trickiest question yet. Is God causing evil and therefore not good? That is, if He is sending Babylon, if we go back to Habakkuk's example, if He is sending Babylon to judge Israel, if our suffering is because of God's judgment, then surely He is not good. Has He caused our suffering? Now, this is a big question. And put simply, uh, but simply, theologians of history have distinguished between God ordaining and causing evil. Now, I don't want to get too into the details at this point, but the difference is seen in Babylon. That is, God doesn't control Babylon. Babylon is not a puppet of which God is manipulating. Rather, Babylon, of their own accord, is going to come into Israel and wage war against them. They will be responsible for their sin and their action. And yet God's sovereignty is such that He is able to work through even that which is not good, that which is evil, to bring about His purposes. And so He's able to say to Habakkuk, Babylon are coming and they will enact my purposes 
but it is not God causing it as much as Babylon is acting out their own sinfulness and it's part of God's big plan. Now, that might be hard to get your head around, but this is the way that the Bible speaks about God's sovereignty, the way that He is able to work His purposes through all things, even as we exercise our freedom and responsibility, even for our own evil purposes. Let me summarize it like this, God's goodness works through all that is not good for a greater good. Now, we're going to have to flesh that out a little bit more, but let me summarize. So, suffering and evil exist in the world because we have used our freedom and responsibility sinfully, God has judged the world and handed it over to its own desires. He is not absent, but, and He will not let injustice ultimately go unchecked, but He works through all things for His greater good, for His glory. But I want to go a little further here because the next question that we've got in our building our framework uh, really wrestles with a very contemporary issue that has caused many to leave the faith. And I'm not going to be able to do it full justice, but it, it, it's, I feel like it wouldn't be disingenuous to not raise it. And that is questioning the goodness of God's commands and judgments. So that is, we might be able to come to a basic understanding of the tension between our freedom and responsibility and God's righteousness and judgment. Uh, that is, that our predicament in suffering and in evil in the world is a result of our sinfulness and a consequence of God's judgment. But what about the instances where God's command is to, for example, purge the land of Canaan, to take it as their own? That is an artist's rendition of the conquest of Canaan. Deuteronomy 7 says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and He drives out many nations before you, the Hethites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy." You must not intermarry with them and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Is God still good? A couple of thoughts on this huge topic. There's a recent episode actually uh, that I point you towards on Undeceptions. Uh, It's a podcast by John Dixon where he uh, takes on the topic of a violent faith and looks at the conquest and other examples um, and chats to a a theologian uh, who wrestles with the Old Testament in this regard. I do point you to, well, that's very good. In fact, our own Richard Hamwe uh, is the the audio engineer behind that. But anyway, uh, I feel it appropriate to raise uh, a few thoughts and questions on this particular topic, given it has been the source of many people to turn away from Jesus uh, because of our sensitivity to goodness and fairness. Now, the lived-out consequences of the holiness of God is much more explicit in the Old Testament. So, the Old Covenant kind of works like this. If you do, if you act faithfully, if you obey, you will receive blessings. If you disobey, you immediately receive the consequences of that. Now, that's the Old Covenant operating. At the centre of it is still grace, that is, God saved Israel by His grace, but He puts, he puts sort of like, it's like, it's like 
bumper lanes uh, bump, uh, on, on bowling. That, that is like he puts guards in to say, stay faithful and obey me and keep your eyes upon me and you'll receive good things and I'll encourage you to do that. But if you veer to the left or the right, there will be consequences. And in a way, natural consequences as God gives them the law and his wisdom to live. Now, um, I guess hence one of the concerns in this passage that they would not intermarry people from other nations, that they would actually sort of go beyond the bounds of what God has before them and be distracted from God. So one of the key focuses in, in, foci in the Old Testament is that they would avoid idolatry, that they would avoid turning away from God. Now the first thing I want to note from this passage in Deuteronomy 7 is that there is a total language, so totally destroy them, but, but that does not mean totally kill everyone. Uh, rather, it means total victory. And, and we can see that actually in the way that that hyperbole is used, because if they were to actually totally destroy everyone, women and children, then there would be no sense in saying you must not intermarry with them, right? So that's just one kind of caveat there or comment there. Uh, the second is that this isn't a random act of violence, now, we are very sensitive to violence and judgment, but this isn't a random act of a God who is a bully, who, who is malevolent. It's a very particular call to, uh, to judge this people group who were living in Canaan, who, who were noted to sacrifice children to other gods uh, and do other despicable acts. Nowhere else in the Old Testament are God's people to called to act in such a way. So there's something very particular about Canaan uh, that, that results in God giving this command to Israel. Uh, in fact, we, we see in Genesis 15 that when there was an opportunity to enter the land, God says, their sin has not reached full measure. That is, my judgment upon them is not at the threshold where we should act. And, and as time continues, they would have had opportunity to return to God, but do not and so God acts in judging them while also giving a, a land for His people. Uh, we also see uh, the character of God when He describes Himself as the Lord our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness. So yes, God does get angry. In fact, He gets angry because He loves, He cares about injustice, He cares about justice and His love means He is a God of justice and He, and he will get angry but He is slow to anger. And so the time between Genesis 15 where, 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 where their sin had not reached the full measure to the point where Israel is told to go in and purge the land is a result of His slowness to anger. Now there is lots more here to say but I just wanted to make a few comments there. I find this stuff hard. I kind of wish it was simpler and I kind of wish passages like Deuteronomy 7 kind of weren't there, if I'm really honest. But we need to be careful bringing our simplistic versions of goodness before a sovereign God to understand His character, to understand His response to a world that is broken, His response to a world that He made and has rejected Him. God's goodness works through all that is not good for a greater good. In fact, this is where Habakkuk finishes, trusting in God's sovereignty, trusting that He is able to work His good purposes through all things. And at the very centre of Habakkuk is this line, this line that's picked up in Romans 1, the righteous will live by faith. 
If you want to live rightly, in, in, with your little kind of window on the world, we ought to live by faith, trusting that God is indeed good and will bring a greater good, even through things that we experience that are not good. Let me finish by returning to the suffering shepherd. God is not standing back. The Bible's clearest answer to the goodness of God in the presence of evil and suffering is in the cross. Uh, In uh, the Pentecost sermon, uh, Peter says this, This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you you, you yourselves know. That is, that the crowd know that the good shepherd is among them because of the things he did. God testified to his goodness through these things. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That is, Peter is saying, you killed him. You orchestrated a plot to bring about evil and yet, what does it say? God's determined plan and foreknowledge. This was within God's sovereignty. He was able to use that which was not good for the greatest good. Why? Because in Jesus dying, he both took on the fullness of suffering as a victim of evil and took on the judgment of our agency in evil. That is, we are responsible before God and we will not stand under His righteous judgment, but He took our judgment on dying in our place. Here is God's ultimate response to our sin and evil in the world. Jesus took it on Himself. Our suffering and our judgment that we deserved. Why? Because God is love. Because God's love means He cares about justice. And He cares about you. He is willing to lay down His life for the sheep, for you, so that you might have life. We don't want justice alone. If if God is just a God of justice, we will not stand. We kind of want a God that is just love in a very simplistic way, but real love cares about justice. And God resolves these two things in His response to suffering and evil by taking on suffering, by taking on evil, by taking on sin and judgment. God's goodness works through all that is not good for a greater good. And the greatest good is being reunited with our holy, righteous, loving, merciful, just, all-powerful and good Father. I acknowledge, of course that this is not going to resolve lots of questions, but I'm hoping that it's the beginning of a framework that we can ask some questions in. Um, As Nat comes up, um, I want to tell you the story of C.S. Lewis, because he was an atheist, uh, and he was satisfied, very publicly so, that the problem of evil and of suffering was a big problem for Christianity. But one of the key turning points for C.S. Lewis was understanding that even our ability to judge God, as good or not, actually requires an objective moral law, an understanding of goodness. He says this, unless we allow ultimate reality to be moral, we cannot morally condemn it. He realised as an atheist, he had no leg to stand on to even judge God as good, for as soon as he called God good or not, he was using some kind of moral kind of uh, framework of which he had nothing without God. 
And that little conundrum was like a thorn in his side and actually was the beginning of him turning to faith. Now, C.S. Lewis knew pain intimately. His wife died and he wrote this, pain shatters the illusion that all is well. It takes away our false sense of happiness and draws our attention to God and our need for Him. May we see God's goodness even through and especially through suffering, for the suffering shepherd is with you for your greatest good. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus as your response to evil and suffering, and yet we also cry with Habakkuk, where are you in particular moments, where there's particular things that weigh us down, that cause us such grief, where we could see a better way. Father, help us to come to you in faith with these questions, that we might find your goodness and find you. Amen. Welcome, Nat. Thank you. Um, I'm pretty sure we've already got a few corkers ready to go. Yes, but there's plenty more now. There is plenty well more. Done. Excellent. Excellent. That's gratifying. Let me refresh the screen here. Um, oh, you, can, you can maybe see what, what I can't see. Do you, want to, uh, do you want to kick us off with a question you can see? I mean, I can try. There's, look, look at my big, big screen. Um, I'm going to dodge the predestination one. Um, <clears throat> okay, this is one that came in. Was God the God of all nations? Why is Israel the only nation that is given grace while other nations are tools of judgment to eventually be eradicated? If they didn't have commandments, how were they to know what is evil? Do you want me to answer? Or do you... Yeah, do you want to start us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've not done this together before, so you know. We've got L plates on. Um, so, this is a great question, but I just want to slightly reject the premise of it. God is absolutely the God of all nations, but I wouldn't say that Israel is the only nation to whom God showed grace. Yes, God did make Israel a special nation, but his intention was that Israel would be a nation of priests. Um, and a light to the Gentiles so that through his special people, all the nations would be blessed. But Israel were, pardon the vernacular, but kind of a bunch of jerks. They rejected God's lordship. They loved a bit of idolatry. Um, and they didn't live as a nation of priests. They were not a light to the Gentiles. But we consistently have a promise through the scriptures, not only that God would preserve a remnant in Israel, but that he would call the nations, that he still had an intention to draw those outside of Israel to himself. And we see that really particularly come to a beautiful fruition in the New Testament as the kind of criteria for being part of God's people is no longer determined by your um, genealogy, by your ethnicity, but it's determined by trusting in Jesus. Uh, and so it's therefore open to all people regardless of your uh, origin. Yes, I, that is a great answer. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about it while you were preaching. I wasn't even listening to you. That's fine. I was wondering whether we go to Romans 9 a little bit. That's, that's, we might come back to that. Romans 9 is a tricky passage. Um, 
it touches on some of the predestination stuff you talked about, but it, it also is wrestling with the question of, is God just through the whole biblical story? Yeah. Oh, look, I've started. I might as well go there. Yeah, do you um, want the... I can read you the predestination <laughs> Uh, well, it, it actually, it comes from, uh, if we just read Romans 9.22, it actually kind of begs the question. Um, and so that is, 20, it says like this, uh, starting at 21, or has the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump one piece of pottery for honour and another for dishonour? And what if God, wanting to, to display His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And you're like, whoa. Um, so, like, has God prepared some for destruction and others uh, for, for mercy? And, and what is the criteria that God has done that? Is that good? Is that fair? Um, a, a couple of comments here. One is, when we're referred to as clay and God the potter, uh, it, it, it's, it's a helpful resolution to kind of... Uh, trying to resolve all of this because there are things that we cannot get our head around. There are reasons why God does things that we will not fully understand. So we've got to look at that which is most clear, Jesus, to help us make sense of the mysterious parts. But I will say that when, when Paul is using the word preparing, that he has prepared some for destruction and prepared some for mercy, they're different words and different tenses in the Greek. So that, that is... Um, the, the first prepared, prepared for destruction, is, is what's called like a passive middle, uh, and it's actually, God, God is not active in that verb. So, so uh, that is that some people by their own doing have rejected God, and in so doing, have prepared themselves for rejection, uh, and yet out of all of that, given we all deserve God's judgment, we've all sinned, God has shown mercy to those who will receive it by faith. And I find that a helpful kind of uh, framework because that's a consistent kind of um, view throughout the Scriptures that we are saved by faith through grace. Yeah. Amen. Mm. Do you want to pick a question? Um, you just want me to fire away. Did you, did you look at anything while I was talking? Yep. <laughs> I can do two things at once. <laughs> yeah, you're better than me. Um, if all are equal in sin and suffering, um, in the in the outworking of sin, why does sin disproportionately affect the most vulnerable in the world? That's a really real question. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I think it actually is the reason why we can't do what's called theodicies, um, mm. which, which is like uh, giving an answer for why there is evil and suffering, because uh, attempts at theodicies, like, um, it, it, you know, it's a natural consequence of evil. We look at the world and we say, that person did not deserve that in that proportion, especially. So what is that about? Yeah. But so I think... That's just, a, I'm just expanding on the question. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fine. I have an answer. <laughs> which is that... People with power sin against people without it. Yeah. Um, and I think a really remarkable thing that we see, I've been, well, actually those who are doing our social Bible reading will be reading Luke at the moment. Um, Luke is really particular about bringing this to the fore. Jesus is really critical of those who have power and wield it in ways that harm those without it. And his message is of hope and joy and restoration for those who've suffered in this world. Um, but for those who have blessings and wealth and, and power in this world and who abuse it, the message is one of condemnation. Um, that's kind of the opposite of the assumptions people made about themselves. So they would assume if I have wealth and power, it's because I'm awesome and God is blessing me. And Jesus says, oh no, this is as good as it gets for you. 
But for those who suffer here and now, um, there is a much better future awaiting them. And I think we see something really remarkable about God in that Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, took on the nature of a human, of a baby. He laid down all of his power to draw people to God. That's what it's meant to look like, Mm. to have power. But sin in the world, yeah, those with power often in their generic sinfulness from which we all suffer, uh, they have more opportunities to use it. Can we go to a pastoral question? Please. How do we keep trusting in God when there are constant curveballs happening? I think that's a polite way of saying it, actually. Um, But how do we persevere, I guess, is the question. Uh, We're not immune to it. Jesus wasn't immune to it. Um, What resources do we have to continue when we feel like God is standing by, especially? Yeah. I've thought about this because I have a story. Is that... Can I just dive in? He got to talk for like 20 minutes before you guys. Um, so it looks like I'm hogging the limelight, but I'm not really. Um, in 2019, in January, um, my like best school mum friend died really suddenly. Um, it was the day before my younger son started kindergarten. Um, her di- like it was, a, um, it was on a harbour cruise. It was just... It was all over the newspapers. It was horrific. And she was someone, she was not a believer, not a Christian, um, but we'd had lots of talks. But I know that she wasn't saved. She had two boys close in age to mine. Um, We would talk most days of the week. And her death was, it's still just one of the most gut-wrenching things I've been through. And I've been through some pretty rubbish stuff. And I feel like that year, most of my prayers were, God, I do not get this. Like, I am so angry that she died and that you took her. Um, And an older, wiser woman said to me, this is a year where faith is going to look like just digging your heels in and saying, I choose to keep trusting you. And growth is really just standing still, digging your heels in, going, I choose to keep trusting you. I, I don't have any answers. Um, we still talk to her husband uh, and we pray for her kids. They've moved into state now, but um, yeah, I won't have answers, um, but I trust in God whom I know to be good and I know him to be good because he sent his son to die on the cross. Um, And so um, as one of the disciples says, like, Lord, where else have we to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so I realised that lack of answers can be really like unsatisfying, but also we just have to suck it up. There's no answers. <laughs> you won't get one. Mm. Um, but it's okay. It's a good thing to have those seasons of just digging your heels in and trying to trust. If we didn't have a who in our search for why, I, I, don't, I, don't, I couldn't be a Christian. Yeah. Like I, Jesus, uh, Paul says, like, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is useless. And I'm like, yes, because like... You know, there, there is our, our God on display on the cross, suffering, um, and yet God is not absent from that. So, His cry of dereliction, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, uh, is, is answered in that I wasn't, uh, I didn't forsake you. I actually worked 
my greatest good through that which was not good, even his own son's death, which he laid down of his own accord and raised him up because death could not hold him down. It gives us real hope um, and our hope is, is grounded in, in suffering, um, if I could put it like that. I, I might finish with just a question here because we're about to go into communion. One of the questions here is like, what's the difference between suffering in the Old Testament and the judgments of the Old Testament and the New? Uh, so if, if the Old Covenant is, is kind of like obey and be blessed and you know, reject God and be cursed, how is that different to, to us now? Well, the New Covenant is forged in the, in, the, in the broken body and the blood of Jesus who fulfilled the Old Covenant, who was cursed, as Galatians puts it, uh, for, for us. Um, and, and now He offers life uh, to those who trust Him. That is, that when we trust Jesus, we are grafted into Him, which took on everything under God for us and then gives us everything of God by faith. Uh, and that means it's no long, we're no longer under the old covenant of simplistic obedience and, and, and living in a particular land and being cursed when we disobey. There is cause for us when we suffer to say, God, show me something if I need to repent of something, but everything ought to draw us closer to Jesus who suffered for us, who died for us, who fulfilled the old covenant and now gives us life. Do you want to add anything to that? Just that, I think it's helpful to remember that in the Old Covenant, largely the blessing to which God's people were oriented was life in the land, um, for, uh, peace, rest from enemies, um, and a good king ruling over God's people. Um, as that becomes increasingly unlikely, as the Davidic throne kind of collapses and, the, and there's no longer, in, like they're under Babylonian rule, Persian rule, Greek rule... Uh, Roman rule, I feel like there was one more in there, but anyway, Macedonian, also Greek sort of, but yeah. Anyway, um, our orientation in the New Testament is cast much more to eternity and not to the, eradica not to the eradication of um, hostile rulers, to the eradication of sin, <laughs> to the eradication of that which is hostile to God in ourselves and in the world and in creation at large. Um, and so it's a much greater hope that we have and a much greater orientation that we have. Um, and so God is pointing us towards a day when there's a final judgment um, from which those who trust in Jesus are spared yeah. or who are judged and found righteous. Yeah, that, that makes me think of uh, how we respond to evil. That That is like the greatest thing we long for is not justice over the wrongdoer against me, but actually justice over the sin in them, um, that they might find the grace that we found. Mm. Now, that's fleshed out in Romans 12, as, God, as Paul calls us to respond, not, in, not with evil, but in kind, um, and to call people to be accountable before God, but uh, that, that opens up a whole other great topic of conversation. <laughs> um, to we'll chat later, you guys. We will chat later. Um, what we'll do is I'm going to lead us in, uh, in, in preparing ourselves for taking the cup and the bread um, of Jesus. We're going to sing our songs, so band members, um, given the time, uh, we'll sing as we hand the elements around and then we'll resolve the service in taking communion together. That's a way of efficiently using the, the three minutes we have left. <laughs> Thank you, Nat. Much appreciated.